You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. Today, we've got Vin Turk, who is the co-founder and COO of Madison Logic, which is a account-based marketing service that helps B2B companies convert their best accounts faster. Sounds like music to my ears already. Vin, first and foremost, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you for the opportunity to have me on your show. I'm excited. I've looked at some of your previous recordings and guests, and I'm excited for this. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining. So yeah, give us a little background on kind of what your story is, and then let's talk about Madison Logic. Sure. My background is originally in computer engineering. So that was my passion growing up. And that's what I went to school at Northeastern University. It was kind of a split between hardware and software. And at the school I went to, they have this co-op program. So half the year after freshman year, you're out in the field working. And I got great exposure working on an Air Force base for the Department of Defense, a biotech firm here in New York City at Showtime Videos, producing all this like flash web content. And then after school, I was kind of done living in Boston. And I had a friend who was back home in New York that said, hey, you should check this out. It's this small internet advertising company that we're selling to these amazing companies, great energy, great money. It's a lot of fun. And I said, well, I know nothing about advertising. I know nothing about sales. But what they were looking for is someone to sell into the technology industry. So I figured if I have a background in somewhat of engineering, and I know the mindset of those IT buyers, let me try to apply that in a sales role. I eventually got the job, was moderately successful. And what I noticed is the company I was working at was selling pay-per-click advertising on B2B websites, right? So Computer World, InfoWeek, all these different websites that cater to specific industries, IT, financial services, and so on. And many of these clients that we were selling were essentially doing the same thing. They were trying to attract an audience to their website and convert them into sales leads by offering up a piece of content, like a white paper, an ebook, or a podcast. And so I looked at this and I said, all right, you're buying per click, you have to create landing pages, capture information, and it's this whole process that involves engineering, audience development, email marketing, then all the budgeting on these other platforms. So I said, if we could take you right to the finish line and give you that ideal customer profile as a lead who've already consumed your content, would that be something that you'd wanna purchase from us? And they said, that would save me time and money and a lot of headaches. I pitched the idea to the CEO and he said, you know, it's a very different business model. It doesn't really fit in. And that culminated in us starting what is now Madison Logic as a completely separate entity. And that's kind of like the backstory there. Cool. That's amazing. So could you give like a, I kind of get it, but maybe a practical case study or example of it in the real world? Sure. So here's a good example. IBM's one of our biggest customers, right? And they've got that supercomputer Watson. And now that supercomputer isn't a fit for every type of company. One, you probably have to be an enterprise company with lots of budget. And then there are very vertical specific applications for healthcare, for scientific, and so on. What we do is we observe the research behaviors of companies around the world that will indicate that they're likely to be in market to buy a certain product. So if we can see that certain companies, let's say a hospital in Texas, is doing research on artificial intelligence and health genomics and all these different applications that would apply to a supercomputer, we take those insights and feed them back to IBM to help them steer their media investments with respect to their targeting. And then we take the content that IBM's produced on Watson, the eBooks, the case studies, the white papers, and deliver it across this network that we've built out over the last 15 years, partnering with these media outlets to find those buyers at those particular accounts or companies. 
Simultaneously, we're surrounding those same folks at that target company with the appropriate brand message on video, mobile, native, desktop advertising. And then we show a lot of insights within our kind of SaaS-based application, the reporting and analytics side. Got it. Would it be fair to say it's an automated account-based marketing solution or is it at least semi-automated? It is, but it still affords the opportunity for our clients to define the specifics. How often do you want to reach these people? What is the frequency? What is the type of content you want to use? And there's absolutely an automation component in there, especially as their prospects begin to move deeper into the buying process where we connect into their own systems, the client systems, CRM, marketing automation. So as a prospect moves down the sales motion, our platform responds by dynamically moving that account into a different media program with different personas being targeted, different messaging, and so on, with the eventual goal of just shortening sales cycles and increasing conversions. Got it. So you just mentioned earlier, maybe for Watson as an example, you're sending an ebook to people. When you say sending an ebook, is that just you are putting a display ad with the ebook or what does that look like exactly? Yeah. So we're not the ones actually sending it to people. What we've done is partnered with these media outlets, the folks that already attract an audience to their website. So let's say there's an industry specific publication all around healthcare and folks from that hospital in Texas are reading the site that publication may send an email out to their newsletter subscribers, basically saying, hey, there's a new piece of content on Watson that really helps hospitals lower total cost of ownership, improve healthcare, and so on. So we're kind of like the middleman that facilitates the content and the brand message to the outlets that have that audience already. Got it, okay. And so how does the business model work? How do you make money? It's based on a cost per lead basis and a CPM or cost per thousand or cost per melee structure on the display side. When a client defines their ideal customer profile, their target audience, we tell them exactly, here's how many leads you can expect with your content, here's the cost per lead, and you simply multiply the two and that's the budget expenditure for that given campaign. So they pay on a cost per lead basis for that product line and the display side is every thousand impressions of your brand that we show on the display advertising side, you pay a certain amount. And that fees typically range between 50 and $100 cost per lead depending on the seniority or the type of function that you're looking to reach, or anywhere from $12 to $25 on the display side, depending on the medium and the narrowness of that audience. Wow, that's a pretty good price depending on the type of company. So I guess, who is your ideal customer? So we sell to B2B organizations, and predominantly those are technology companies. And that then itself breaks down into two sectors. So the enterprise are the big brand names that you would know, Oracle, Intel, Microsoft, Dell, Cisco, and so on. Then there's mid-market companies that are either heavily VC-backed funding and need to grow at a rapid rate or on their own are organically growing very fast. And again, what's happening is that they've already built out this demand generation framework and waterfall. So they know how to properly assess based on a certain volume of leads. Here's my expected conversion rate, time to nurture those leads, converting into sales opportunity, average order value. So they can construct this whole formula and we fit very neatly into that. So one of the things that we do look for to ensure that the client will find value in our services and products is that they are prepared. They have the right tools to measure this type of thing. Awesome. And what kind of numbers can you share around the business growth rates, employee size, revenues, whatever you're at liberty to share? Yeah. yeah. So we have been listed on Inc's 5,000 six times in a row is one of the fastest growing companies. And then the last time it was listed, it was over $50 million. We're headquartered here in New York. We've got about 120 folks globally at the time of this discussion. And then we've got offices around San Francisco. We've got folks in Austin, Chicago. Then we've got folks in London, in Dublin, and Singapore. 
simply as a function of our clients' global needs. And we found it very advantageous to have regional support as the types of campaigns and their media execution have nuances as compared to the North American folks. Love it. Just out of curiosity, whenever I've looked at the, the Inc. 5000, or is it 500 or 5000, I've always been hesitant to list anything because my interpretation of it, and according to other founders that I talk to, is all you get is a bunch of spam. So I guess what has it done for you guys? Well, the first thing is that we do like to be publicly recognized for certain achievements, right? And in our sector, in New York City, there's a lot of ad tech, but there's not a lot of marketing technology. And the fact that we were on it back to back to back to back to back six times, I think is a good testament to us. We had a a unique upbringing in the sense that we didn't go out and raise any institutional funds. So we didn't go to VCs and raise lots of millions of dollars. And that's kind of a blessing and a curse. You know, let's start on the downside is that you just don't have the resources to do maybe all the different types of promotions, scale the team very rapidly and fast. So we had to grow organically. And again, one of the other things that we had to do is become profitable very early on. So after about month four, we were profitable. And since that point, we've always been. And at the same time, we have the luxury of making our own destiny up. And we have a lot of patience. And because of that, we have taken a lot of time to get to that point. But again, to answer your question, I think it is good, especially when you are selling to marketers that like to see how you've been recognized, how your solutions are considered either innovative or standing out. That's been good. But at the same time, I hear your point because sometimes you look at companies like, wow, 6,000% growth over the last year. And it's like, well, the base was so low that anything above that is a multiplier and then you're on the top 10. So I feel you. Got it. That makes total sense. Thank you for that. And I guess it's amazing that you guys have grown this organically. What do you think you talking with your co-founder? What's the long play here? Is it an exit? Is it just continue to grow? What's the vision? Yeah. So to add some clarity to that, we actually had an exit in 2016. Got it. So we sold to a private equity firm here in New York called Clarion Capital. And that was a very successful exit for the founders, the manager team, and so on. But private equity firms typically buy companies to continue to grow them and sell them again. So the longer term play will be to eventually have another transaction, but they believe in the management team, in the product, in the opportunity. And just this industry that we're in continues to grow as a whole. So that was really good. And then in 2014, we had a spinoff of another company where internally we started this R&D project. I want to say around 2012, where we were collecting and amassing all this data. And that data was really the fuel to drive this intelligence as to where to steer marketing investments. And what we realized is if we were preparing to sell the company in 2016, that data business, it didn't really have any revenue tied directly to it. So the multiple it would receive is pretty much a media multiple. Now, the media business was wildly profitable, so we received a multiple based on how we were growing in that sense. So that and a number of other factors made us decide to spin this business out as a separate entity. That company is now called Bombora, which is the largest aggregator of B2B intent data. And so they're doing amazing. They're growing fantastically. I'm not an operator in that business, but from the perspective of where we'd like to see this go, I think that was very successful. I think the transaction with Clarion was very successful. And now we're in growth mode. We are in expansion and growth mode. That's what our focus is. Got it. So last year was 50. What do you think you guys will do this year? We don't publicly disclose our budgets and our goals, but we are always looking for double digit growth. I think the way that things are going, I feel very confident in that we'll hit our goals. Got it. Beautiful. Sorry for being vague there. That's fine. You gave a lot of numbers already. That's great. So What's been working really well for you right now in terms of customer acquisition? So one of the things that we decided at the end of last year to focus on is expansion and upsell. We look at our core customers, right? We kind of build out cohorts based on top 25, top 50, top 100, and then the longer tail. And we said, what opportunity still exists 
to continue to get deeper into these enterprise customers that represent our top 25 and top 50. And we said, even if we put more of a focus just on further expanding the customers that already work with us, that might be a greater revenue opportunity than going off and just doing purely net new logo hunting. And so these are very large established brands that have hundreds of millions or more in digital advertising budgets. And because we had already built up a base of these folks over numerous years, we've already got that relationship and that trust established with them. And as everyone says, it's easier to sell into your current customers and go out and get new ones. We found that to be the case. So we kind of have multiple tracks going on, but there is a heavy emphasis on expansion of our existing customers. And that really falls into increasing the number of customers that buy multiple products from us, buy across multiple regions, like in APAC, EMEA, and North America, and then getting integrated. And by integrating, I really mean connecting the systems that they use with the systems that we've provided. And by doing so, that makes us more sticky and embedded. And what we've seen from our own internal data is that customers buy from us more, they buy more frequently, their campaigns are longer in duration, and their overall expenditure is greater when they get integrated, not to mention they see greater value from our product when they're integrated. So the focus really is getting everyone that's already gone through the first few buys, the initial pilots, towards longer term deals, more integrated manner, and then going deeper into the larger organizations, moving up the food chain in certain areas, and then just going to more business units and product lines. Got it. I don't usually ask this question. I'm just curious. For Madison Logic, what are the key tools that you have in your tech stack? Sure. On the sales side, traditionally, we use Salesforce as a CRM. We've got a number of tools around contact discovery. We've got some on automated outreach, kind of like SDR functions of sending emails. We've got other tools that show us intelligence about accounts. Are there funding events, acquisition alerts? Are new companies putting content out in the marketplace that would be a signal that they may be a good fit for us? And then we look at, it's kind of a split between marketing and sales, just like what are the installed technologies that they've already put in there, right? So that helps us understand what marketing automation they use, what CRM system, where they're spending their money. That again helps frame the conversation when we initially pitch them and say they are a good fit to get integrated into us. On the marketing side, we have things like Marketo. We have Visible, which is like attribution modeling. And then we do Sales Navigator on LinkedIn and we do all kinds of different advertising content and so on. How big is the sales team? Globally, I think we've got about 35 people. Got it. Okay. And structure of that team? So there's a CRO that's here in New York, and then he's got VP of international and then regional heads in each area. And the US is kind of like divided into multiple regions. And then there's EMEA, and then there's APAC, which covers Singapore, Hong Kong, India, South Korea, Japan, and the other areas like Indonesia, Malaysia, and such. Great. Earlier before we started the show, we talked about three passion points. One that sticks out to me immediately is around vision alignment. So it sounds like you have a lot of people spread everywhere. And as you get bigger, it's harder to make sure everyone's marching in the, in the same direction. You know, I, I think uh, there's a, actually, for, I recommend to people, Google Dharmesh Shah vectors Elon Musk, and you'll find what that means. But just making sure everyone's marching in the same direction. So what does vision alignment mean to you and how are you doing it effectively? Sure. So there's really two different lenses that we look at this through. And one starts on the product side, right? So what we've done is we've created like this compass. It's got north, south, west, east. Hopefully that shows up on your screen the right way, right? And what we did is we plotted all of the companies that we deem as competitors and some as complementary onto this map. And then we plotted ourselves. And one of the axes going across is channels. Are you single channel or are you multiple or omni channel? And then there's data quality. Is it low data quality or is it high data quality? 
And we plotted all these competitors and said, this is where we are. And if we want to be in that top right region, what are the steps necessary to get there? And how will competitors react to that? And so as they roll out new products, new initiatives, we move them around as well based on feedback that we get from mutual customers or that we're seeing in the analyst community. And then they're saying, this is our vision. That's where we're going. And everything that we do from a product and technology perspective aligns to that vision. As we continually and incrementally roll out these new releases and updates, we're showing on our all hands, which is now occurring every two weeks, exactly how that's moving us in the right direction or even potentially in the wrong direction. And if we miss on a release date because we have to take care of something else, this is exactly the impact that it's had. Now, it's somewhat similar in terms of the vision and the values of the company around transparency, empowerment, working together, accountability. And we like to think that the way that we structure our QBRs, our OKRs, our management meetings, everything kind of falls within those same values. And again, we plot them to show here's where we are when we take a pulse on the employees where managers don't get to participate. Individual contributors, they give honest and anonymous feedback as, do you feel the company is living up to these values? Do you think the management team is kind of guiding and leading through these? And what are the things that we can do to help improve on that? And we constantly go back and renew and refresh exactly, this is what we're focused on, this is where we are. And those engagement surveys really help our HR and our human resources team and department structure what it is we're going to do over the next 12 months. And once this all happened, everyone worked from home, I want to say right around middle of March, we had to kind of rethink things because we had initiatives that were focused in office to do, whether it's catered lunches, bringing people together to have certain topics around these values. Well, that's not happening anymore. No one's going into the office. So how do we readjust and realign that? Well, we're not bringing lunch in anymore. So we found this interesting thing called Zestful, which is like this prepaid credit card that you can give to all your employees where they can spend on the things that they need at their own apartment. I don't mean to get off track a little bit, but I just want to make sure that the way that we look at our vision and our values falls within the actual product march towards our market dominance, hopefully, and then the values that we want to live by. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. Thank you for that. One thing you also mentioned too, being a business over 15 years is the note around not sweating the small stuff. What does that mean to you? What it means is that we have to make decisions that will impact all of our employees and all of our customers, right? And the potential customers that we want to bring on. And when we get down to the minutia, the really tactical things, we have to ask ourselves, is this really going to make a difference one way or the other? And if not, let's not spend too much resources and energy trying to just drill it as granular as we can. And the other side of it is really helping some of the newer folks in our team look at the longer term play here. Let's say you're in sales, right? And you don't win the deal. You lose the deal. Or you had a current customer that decided not to renew. You still have to stay focused on what your long game is. And if you let that one customer loss really drag you down to the detriment of your overall productivity that day, that week, that month, that's not going to help you achieve your goals. And so over 15 years, you know, I've seen our business you know, go up, go sideways, go a little dip every once in a while, and then keep going. If you take a step back and look at the longer term trends, I think oftentimes it's very helpful to see the direction that the business is going. Now, if you look deeply into one particular quarter and you say, oh, this month we missed on this goal, you can get down and out about it, but you really got to take a step back and look at it from the longer term play. And because I've been doing it for over 15 years, I think that gives me a somewhat of a perspective to look across these time horizons. Love That's it. What I mean by it. Thank you. Working towards wrapping up here. So two final questions. One, what's your favorite business book? I saw when you passed this question along, it's tough, but I've read it a few times. The Hard Thing About Hard Things is a fantastic book. Ben Horowitz, 
He's now a VC, but he really brings it down to a level that founders should understand. This stuff's not easy. And you're going to have to deal with really emotional roller coasters constantly. People that you brought on your team that you respect, that you've built these relationships with, that you think are extremely talented, maybe they're not a fit for the company anymore. And as you grow, how do you make those recalibrations and adjustments? That one has always stuck out. I read that a few years ago and, and read it again. And then there were other books in college. I'm just going to add one more in there. If the Innovator's Dilemma, which is a fantastic book that really talks about essentially how to kill your own products when you see an opportunity that's coming in the marketplace. What's your favorite book, Eric? I mean, the most recommended book on this podcast is The Hard Thing About Hard Things. It's literally okay. over and over and over. Um, I swear this was not set up. Eric did not tell me about that. <laughs> no, but it's a great book. Innovator's Dilemma is great too. I mean, for me, I just typically remember whatever's top of mind. I'm blanking right now. So I would just say The Hard Thing About Hard Things because it's good. Mark Cuban's got a great book too. It's the same type of setup. It's a bunch of blog posts as a book. But anyway, final question from my side. What is your favorite business tool? Can't be called Madison Logic. <laughs> okay. I use Slack quite a bit. I know a lot of people will probably say that. It is a tool that we've heavily integrated into our internal systems, our sales system like CRM, our middleware that we've developed just for our unique cases. It's tied to our engineering team. It's tied to our release management. I have it on my phone. I have it on my laptop all over the place. So I would say Slack's up there. Outside of that, we use Domo for business intelligence that has radically transformed the way that we operate. And that's been a fantastic tool as well. Awesome. All right. Well, Vin, what's the best way for people to find you online? You can go to our website. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can email me. It's Vin at Madison Logic. It'll come right to me. I usually shoot it straight, but that's the best way to find me. All right, Vin, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me, Eric. It's been a pleasure. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.